podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you're enjoying Red Inca but want to know more about Fred Spoffer's moustache or the time Vizzy got stumped looking like a buffoon or any other great stories from cricket's past, well, I have a history of cricket podcast called Double Century. And luckily for you, season three has just started. This time we look at something that will please cricket fans around the world, except maybe from one country, because we're looking at the first time teams defeated England. It's a different kind of podcast series in that it's mostly narrated, but there will also be some key episodes that I'm interviewing the players involved. You can hear this by finding Double Century in your favourite podcast app. This episode of Red Inca, we look at one partnership between Sachin Tendulkar and Mohamed Azharuddin batting at Cape Town. A short, brilliant partnership that inspired an entire book. So here is one of the authors. This is Abhishek Mukherjee. I am the editor at Cricket News. On this episode, we talk about Mohamed Azharuddin the batter and also his legacy. How fast bowling in India have always gone together. How cricket history could be so hard when England is not involved where Sachin was at this point in his career, South Africa's relationship with India, and how Nelson Mandela watched, and perhaps even inspired, this particular partnership. You've also written a book, so while we're here, why don't you say the name of the book, and your co-author, who is not here. This is Sachin and Azhar at Cape Town. I've written this with Arunabha Sengupta, who is in Netherlands, And that is where we were while we co-authored this book. I was in India and he was in Netherlands when we co-authored the book. I think a lot of people will be very interested in this book because of the Azharuddin angle. I mean, it's basically a book about Sachin Tendulkar, Nelson Mandela and Mohamed Azharuddin. And, you know, spot the odd one out in those three. What sort of drove you two to write the book in the first place? The first thing is... I think the entire history of cricket as we know it is written from a very Anglo-Australian perspective. I mean, if you ask cricket writers, cricket historians to list the greatest matches, greatest performance, almost all of them involve at least one of Australia and England. At least one, if not both. So this one completely passed under the radar. I don't know why exactly, because this was a very unlikely partnership. Unlikely in many ways. First, India were bowled out for 166, not 166. 100 in the first innings and 66 in the second innings at Durban. They lost by over 300 runs. Here, South Africa put up over 500. India were 58 for 5. This innings was not supposed to happen. This was not on the cards. And then... When we discuss the greatest innings, the greatest partnerships, it typically involves a long rear guard axe. We have seen the Dravid Lakshman stands. We have seen a couple of them. So they lasted over a day. This one lasted just around two hours or thereabouts. And typically it's attack at one end and defense at the other. But this was attack at both ends. The five bowlers, all of them averaged below 30 in test cricket. Donald was at his peak. Pollock was just establishing himself as his partner. Klusner was just coming off an eight-wicket haul on test debut. McWillan had been there. And Paul Adams has a better record against India than Shane Warne. So this was the bowling attack. 
as i said when we talk about famous partnerships in test cricket a sustained long partnership it is typically attack from one end defense from the other or sustained attack from both ends this was uninhibited attack from both ends and it was relentless it went on i mean 200 or runs are thereabouts in one session 222 run partnership in about 40 overs against that kind of attack in cape town i don't think there is a parallel in all these years of test cricket but it passed under the radar i mean you saw just around a year later atherton's performance hmm. uh, you just search on the internet and there'll be 50 pieces on that alone but there's nothing on this one probably because of the result but again there was very little coverage one of the reasons that there was very little coverage was this innings came at a very strange juncture between print era and the internet era so the internet era of cricket journalism was just about taking off yeah so whatever reports you'll find of this match or this period are very basic on the internet whatever you'll find the other thing is cable television in india that came in the early 1990s until the early 1990s whatever test cricket indians got to see live was from asia outside asia india toured their first major tour since proper cable television came across the country was one test kapil dev's last test in 1994 after that the first full length series india got to see was in 1996 in england and then there was this one so basically there was this other thing we actually got to see this test match live but we were surprised that no one wrote as much i mean this was a partnership waiting to be written about that is another thing and then india and south africa if you look at the two countries globalization happened in india roughly at the same time when south africa also opened up to the world so the two countries i won't say grew together but there was a common starting point in their growth yeah i mean the, the whole thing is really interesting also one of the other things i was thinking about is that mohammad azharuddin is famous for being a match fixer and his role in that but if you grew up in the 80s and 90s like we did he was famous for being incredibly elegant and your book's got some incredible moments like um Lance Kluzner compares him to Steve Smith in his ability to hit the ball anywhere on the leg side from outside off stump but Azar could also play the same ball or out on the offside brilliantly yeah. as well and was you know compared to Steve Smith graceful i think in I think in the book you might say he plays ungrammatical shots on the offside but i always loved his shots on the offside as well they were his own he was for a long time one of the best batters in the world in what was not a particularly great era for batting yeah the problem with azar is he often had this long string of poor scores low scores he doesn't have a great record against fast bowling but here india lost the test match in ahmedabad then azhar came out and scored 115 in calcutta in the next test he scores 100 in kanpur he fails in durban but again he scores 100 in cape town so that is 300s in four test matches against south africa and then suddenly he again loses form so this is one of the problems azhar had when he got runs he got them in bunches of 300s 400s even 500s and then he suddenly inexplicably lost form again for a couple of years so either you remember him at his peak or you remember him for the rest of his career that is how we typically but see azhar fans of the era agree on one thing that he was probably not an all time great 
they will be the first to agree to that but then again he was a different kind of batter to view when he was on song nobody mm. matched him there were some shots that only he could play yeah i mean when, when you say he wasn't an all-time great if i remember from your book wasn't there a three or four year period where he only played one test at home yeah i mean that's where you make all your runs <laughs> yeah and it's almost a fairy tale so azhar he scores 300s on test debut in his first three test matches so that's still a world record and then over the next 4 5 years he just scores one more test 100 so india tours pakistan in end of 1989 azhar is all set to be dropped from the test 11 on the morning of the test match raman lamba injures a finger azhar is included at the last moment not long before the toss he scores 35 in each innings but he takes five catches in the next test match he scores 100 india that's a four test match series azhar keeps his place so it's a 0-0 draw india returns from pakistan shrikant was captain shrikant is sacked after the test series raj singh dungarpur of bcci goes up to azhar and asks azhar during a domestic match will you become captain of india and azhar at that point had led in only four first class matches so with that kind of experience azhar is named captain of india and azhar's first tour is of new zealand then england then australia then south africa in between all this he gets to lead only in one home test against sri lanka at home that is against the weakest side in the first 3 years of captaincy azhar gets only one home test 10 years later ganguly is appointed captain ganguly starts with a test match in bangladesh and then he leads four tests across two series against zimbabwe and then a series in zimbabwe so it often depends on how you start yeah no definitely there's some other things i found really fascinating from his career one that i had noticed specifically was that later in his career he scored a lot quicker and we see most test batters get slower because yes. they basically eradicate any shots where they can ever be dismissed so that no one can abuse them in newspapers right and to do the opposite of that i wonder if you could even do that in this era or if that's something that anyone would do in modern times but i just wonder if something changed in his mindset the way he went after test attacks in the 90s compared to the 80s it made no sense because the moment the attacks got better he started scoring quicker you usually do the other way round as you say he became captain and he started scoring quicker again you do the other way round so azhar was sacked after the england tour of 1996 suddenly he started scoring quicker people would say he was playing rash shots but he got 300s in four mm. tests against south africa so you can't write off some of his shots but you can't write off 300s the other thing i want to mention is because he's a forgotten cricketer because better batters have come after him in india and more success has come after him and the match fixing he's a largely forgotten cricketer but the other thing is i would say that as a first slip fielder he's about as good a first slip as i've ever seen yes. i mean him and ross taylor seem to see the ball before any other first slips you know there's been some great first slips in cricket but those two seem to just be always in the right position and he was one of india's other or well, i suppose kapil dev was a great athlete as well but he was one of india's first great athletic fielders as well wasn't he they had been very skillful yes. fielders in india before but he wasn't just a skillful fielder or just an athletic fielder he was a combination of both he could do everything he was kind of like a taller ricky ponting 
he could feel in the circle he could feel that bat pad he could feel in the deep these are from his early days then he, once he became captain he started fielding at slip and even when he was one of the stars of world cricket he was out there in domestic cricket for hyderabad practicing over 100 catches every day this surprised vvs lakshman but azhar told him that this has been the secret to his success there was natural talent of course but he never compromised on that hard work and this particular partnership and by the way i have looked it up mohammed azhardin was 1 cm taller than ricky ponting so i was right when i said he was a taller ricky ponting you know the other part of this partnership is obviously sachin tendulkar where is sachin tendulkar at this stage in his career i'm trying to sort of picture I mean he's well beyond you know making that 100 against England and making his debut against Pakistan and the runs against Australia and he's basically at this stage it's him and Brian Lara with sort of Steve Ward just behind them uh, is that the era we're talking about or is it just before then Yes Tendulkar and Lara went side to side but the one complaint against Tendulkar was he never got those giant scores Tendulkar's first double hundred came very late Lara was getting 277 then 375 then 501 Tendulkar was not getting those giant scores but Tendulkar was getting the runs Tendulkar was getting hundreds and Tendulkar's hundreds the problem was unlike some of Kohli's hundreds Tendulkar's hundreds often came in defeats because India were not a great side mm. India didn't have a great fast bowling unit they had Shrina but not a great unit so Tendulkar scored a uh, 100 against England at Edgbaston 6 months before that he scored a 120 odd when the rest of the team got less than 100 but that remains a forgotten innings because india lost badly so this one also is not remembered as one of tendulkar's greatest innings but if you simply look at what tendulkar did and one thing i do not like is combining format but just by sheer runs during this period the last 4 5 years of the 20th century Tendulkar was significantly ahead he just pushed himself ahead of Brian Lara if you look at the ICC rankings Lara had that head start but if you look at the ICC rankings Tendulkar and Lara were fighting for that number 1 spot throughout this 5 year span and Lara had those massive series that came from time to time for example the 2001 series in Sri Lanka Lara scored 6688 in 3 tests i think that series has no parallel i mean i don't think that series has any parallel about how to play modli tendulkar never scored 500 in a single series of any length but he had too many 300 plus series too many of the i mean that is one characteristic that tendulkar always had during this period there was another thing that tendulkar lost the number one ranking and then he started again at in the second half of the 2000s and scaled back to number 1 again after a 10 year span you know how the number icc rankings work one once you drop out of the top 10 it's very difficult to reach that number 1 mm. spot again but tendulkar did that after a 10 year gap another thing is tendulkar he had scored 192 he scored 100 in 2001 he scored 200 in 2011 he has a very good record in south africa in fact tendulkar has a 40 plus average in all 10 countries that is something very difficult to achieve over a 24 year career yeah i i mean i would like to think doing it in one country would be difficult for you or me but to do it in all those countries <laughs> certainly a little bit tougher the the other thing i found interesting here is the fast bowling aspect and you talk about how mohammed azhardin wasn't always respected because he wasn't a great player of genuinely fast bowling 
that was obviously one thing that Sachin was always quite good at. It was like he was born to face very fast bowling. Something we don't talk about a lot now, but it's still there in the background almost all the time, is that Indian fans still don't respect their own players a lot if they're not brilliant against fast bowling. Whereas, in truth, as you and I know, there are players who are brilliant against spin and players who are brilliant against fast bowling. That's a normal thing for test players to be. But people don't do that. And I think a lot of that goes all the way back to the 1950s. And was Azaruddin maybe one of the... He wasn't obviously the only one because Ganguly certainly had problems with fast bowling. But was Azaruddin maybe one of the last people that didn't quite conquer fast bowling in the way that India fans were looking for, whereas the next generation really did? I suppose. I mean, that was not only the fans. The senior cricketers also held that against Azar. Azar was severely criticised after the 1989 tour of West Indies. Azar didn't do well. He was criticised. But then Azar had these strange performances that often defied logic. Because, see, India went to Australia in 92. It was a terrible tour. Azar was in terrible form. But in Adelaide, India were chasing 371. They were down and out completely. And then Azhar suddenly brings them back into the game with a 100. India lose by just 37 runs. And that too happens after a few strange umpiring decisions. Not in Australia, surely. Yeah. I think Jan Chappell or someone said on air, if that is out, then I'm a Dutchman <laughs> or something like that. Lucky it wasn't Dirk Nanus. That would have been confusing. Yeah. That's one of the other interesting things in this particular partnership is that they are facing Pollock and Donald, aren't they? As you said before, it's five incredible bowlers. Paul Adams and Brian McMillan and Lance Kluzner are sort of there and thereabouts. But just Pollock and Donald on their own is an incredible bowling lineup. So it must have meant something, especially on a wicket like Cape Town, for Azza to stand up there. And also, that's the other thing I want to talk about this partnership. It's not just about standing up. They blitzed Pollock and Donald, right? And yes. they absolutely smashed them everywhere. And that, again, is it's almost like another step in the development of Indian cricket, isn't it? It's We can face fast bowling. Oh, no, we can't just face it. We can dominate fast bowling. Yes, I mean, if you watch the video, towards the end of the innings, Azhar played a shot of Donald towards leg side. It was so outrageous. I've never seen Donald look so exasperated. Almost, it had, how can you do that to me kind of look on his face. I mean, you're not supposed to do that. It was an, a short show so outrageous. And remember, none of the two got out to actually a bowler. Azhar was run out. It was a bizarre run out. And Tendulkar got out to an incredible catch. So, neither was a bowler's wicket. Mm. I mean, you could see that they had taken 15 wickets for 224 runs before that partnership. And then suddenly, a bowling attack of that kind was left clueless. They didn't know where to bowl to either of them. Tendulkar was still playing what you would say conventional shots, but Azhar was simply creating shots out of nowhere. If there was a mid-off, he was hitting it past the mid-off. He was not even trying to avoid him. And what was the relationship between Sachin and Azhar like? You wrote about it a little bit. I was trying to think back to the 90s. That was kind of before we knew every single emotion of every Indian cricketer because of blogging and Twitter. Mm -hmm. And so I don't remember that much about their relationship, but you do cover it in the book. Most of it was speculation. We read on the media that the relationship between the two was not the greatest. A lot of it, I feel, today was exaggerated, but maybe not all of it. I mean, it is very difficult to separate the facts from what was made up from this pre-internet era. Yeah. These are things you won't spot on a scorecard. As much as you try. Yeah. But they were very different human beings, though, weren't they? Yes, yes. 
Yeah, it, it's fascinating, that whole dynamic. I want to broaden it out just a little bit from those two there. This game, you have Mohamed Azardin and you have Hansi Kronje, perhaps two of the most infamous captains of all times, and not so much for, you know, how they captain, but for match fixing. Incredible to look back and think about the fact that they were going about their business and we were largely unaware. Yeah, and the funny thing is they never led in the same test match. Yeah. Throughout their careers. Otherwise, they both would have declared on zero. <laughs> we would have had a test match where no one batted. A tie. <laughs> Ronnie has a surprisingly good bowling record against India. He does. Tendulkar once told, I mean, he, I didn't know this, I found out recently in an interview. Tendulkar once told Cronier, when Cronier came on to bowl, Tendulkar asked him to take himself away and bring Alan Donald back. He was so uncomfortable against Cronier. This sounds unbelievable, but Tendulkar himself admitted to this. So in your book, and you've now, you, did you guys go back and watch this innings ball by ball? Whatever is there on YouTube. Yeah, you watched. And whatever I was able to reconstruct from newspapers and everything. And we, both of us saw the match live. So this is my question. We have two of the world's most famous match fixers in that game. You've written a loving book about how brilliant the game is. Do you think there was any fixing in any of the matches that you watched for your book? You can't fix a partnership like that. <laughs> Not the partnership. Obviously, you, you can make a partnership like that, but I mean, it's an honest question. If you've gone back and, and, and relived that, I mean, there has to be a part of you that is, if you'd gone back and watched that without knowing anything, you'd go with it completely clean slate. But you can't do that because you're a cricket historian and one, probably the best cricket historian in the world. So you have to go back and look at this. There must have been a part of you that was like, I wonder. The scorecard seems fantastic. The batting is too good to make up. That is how I would put it. I mean, this partnership, the video is too good to make up. But interestingly, some test matches sound really fantastic. I mean, consider Botham's test match at Headingley. After all these years, it has been 40 years now. How did that really happen? Hmm. I mean, almost just managed an innings defeat and go on scoring. And then there is that bowling effort from Bob Willis. So you actually have to watch the videos and convince yourself, no, okay. This is too fantastic to make up, actually. Well, the funny thing is you have actually, of course, picked the test match there where there was betting on the game yes, that we're aware yes. of. So I don't know if you give me subliminal messages now at this point, but I like that you did that. One of the other things I like about the book, it's a really interesting book. It's almost written in a blog style, like a conversation between the two of you together and then with little, little bits of facts dropped in and, and occasionally interviews and other bits dropped in. I, but I really liked it. And, and that's why I, one reason I asked about Azar and Cronier being in that test together. But there's lots of other different things that you brought up as well, like things that I'd forgotten, like Robin Jackman. So Robin Jackman was a commentator in that series. Mm -hmm. And you go back and, and follow the full history of Robin Jackman, who was an English cricketer who was taken out of Guyana yes. because the Guyanese government was so upset at him because he often went to South Africa to play cricket. There's lots of little yes. like asides in this book, isn't there? And you've been able to hang a lot of cricket history on one incredible partnership that a lot of people have forgotten. There are two things. It was an abnormal society until the early 1990s. That is, we know. But exactly what happened in South Africa, exactly the extent of what used to happen was not very well documented, at least for Indians. Until the early 1990s, the Indian passport carried the message for admission in all countries other than Republic of South Africa. So it was like that. 
And so South African government, I don't think, allowed a lot of information out of South Africa. And the Indian government's stance against racism was very strong. Remember, in 1974, India reached the Davis Cup final. And the final was against South Africa in South Africa. And instead of touring South Africa, India gave a walkover. India have not won a Davis Cup. So, but they still gave a walkover. So it was that strong a stance. That is one of the most incredible things in sport, that particular Davis Cup. I don't know why it is not talked about more. Yes. Why on earth South Africa were playing the Davis Cup in the 1970s is beyond me. And then the fact that India get into the final and give up their chance to win it. it to me, it's one of the most remarkable things that, that has ever happened. And the fact that it isn't talked about more. So, I mean, they do have this intertwined history. You also have Gandhi's relationship with South Africa as well. Yes. And then on top of all that, there's this other guy watching this innings. He was there, wasn't I? I'm not mistaken. Yes. I forget his name. He's from, I think he, he hung around Cape Town for a long time. Was it Nelson Mandela? Was that the guy? Yeah, I think that's the one you're talking about. And until lunch, it was normal cricket. And he met the cricketers at lunch and suddenly this explosive partnership happened. You almost get the feeling that Mandela inspired them. You see things like this in movies that the presence or a pep talk of one person co-altering the course of a match completely. But to watch that happen in real life, it almost gives you the feeling that maybe the sum of the movies is true. It's Do we know if Mandela said anything like, come on, boys, whack a couple of rounds? <laughs> hey, hey, why don't you bring, why don't you bring out your slogging bat, Azza? Yeah, he had a slogging bat. You know that, right? Yeah. Don't forget, in the 90s, most of the senior players had a slogging bat. Do you remember? That was like a thing. Yes, yes. I remember both of them being one of the first ones I ever remember, like getting to a certain point in an innings and then just suddenly, they always used to say the lighter bat, didn't they? It was always the lighter bat. And it was never yes. a lot. It was just a bat that they would swing harder. Now all the bats are slogging bats. Yes. But in the 90s, actually, the moment they asked for the slogging bats, we knew, the spectators knew, okay, now the fun is about to happen. Yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I really enjoyed this. I, I want to get back to your original point because it's something that you and I have talked about a lot through our work and, you know, occasionally to each other when we're being frustrated that we can't find something that we want to find. But one of the reasons I got obsessed with early South African cricket was because I knew a lot about early Australian cricket and I knew a lot about early English cricket. And you're like, well, things happened in South Africa. Like, who is Jimmy Sinclair? And there are all these guys who seem to have the same name as each other. And Aubrey Faulkner and the leg spinners and, and all those sorts yes. of guys came out. And then you could say the same of the early West Indies history is incredible as well. Obviously, early India, early Pakistan, early New Zealand. You and I have both written about New Zealand. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. If you're not playing against Australia or England, as you said, it's almost like it didn't happen. I mean, when I was researching my book, I realized just how little was written about Garfield Sobers and um, Hanif Muhammad both passing 300 in the same test series. So one guy batted for longer than anyone's ever batted before, probably. And the other guy made more runs than anyone ever made before. Yes. And there's not a particular amount of good first-person reporting from that. I'm assuming... No. Not many Pakistani journalists went. There weren't a lot of West Indian journalists who travelled because they usually just did their home tests. And you see that over and over again in test cricket, don't you? Yeah, I mean, West Indies' tour of India in 1949, it was a one-nil series. You, If you go through the scorecards, you'll recognise a pattern. Vijay Hazare and Rusi Modi batting again and again, weak scoring 100, and then Hazare and Modi giving it back. That happened test after test after test. So... It was a great series, only one produced a result, but it could easily have been 3-0 or 4-0. Then there is that Bert Sutcliffe innings. 
it should have been everywhere had england been involved in that series yeah because see 10 years later cowdrey walked out with a plastered hand but didn't face a ball we saw how much coverage that one got because it happened in lords so that got tremendous coverage i mean in the early 1960s new zealand toured south africa south africa led 1-0 new zealand made it 1-all south africa made it 2-1 new zealand made it 2-all so these are exceptional series and these don't happen every time mm. but these don't get written about i mean you'll get maybe one book but not more than that i think i can't remember from you wrote this in in the book but there's so much of cricket memories that are what we can remember from replays and from live footage and also from the written stuff that has happened and so there's a lot of incredible test cricket that was played basically 50 60 70s and 80s which doesn't exist anymore just because it wasn't covered correctly it wasn't written about very extensively and there was no video or not a lot of video that was packaged of it and so it just sort of disappears doesn't it and that's one thing you and I as historians notice a lot there are some cricketers who just disappear and no fault of their own absolutely incredible players and they just their legacy just sort of dissipates doesn't it because they didn't make runs at the right time against the right teams yeah considering an englishman dennis emis fantastic cricketer has a tremendous record but he is not regarded as highly as some of his contemporaries because he didn't do well in the ashes so he was born in the right country he got the runs at the right level but not against the right opponents so it didn't matter see your book sachin's legacy is obviously fine he'll be okay people will probably keep talking about him nelson mandela he seems to be doing okay as well he doesn't need any help from you Muhammad Azharuddin probably other than that movie that they were going to make on him which would have been by his friends there isn't going to be that much written about Muhammad Azharuddin over the next 30 or 40 years because as we said before better indian cricketers have come the indian team is completely changed he was involved in match fixing he was also a politician and some people love that party some people do not love that party as yeah kind of happens with politics Where do you think his legacy will end up? Will we just forget what a pretty batsman he was because of the match fixing completely? Will he continue to remain as part of the conversation or as Indian cricket goes he'll just be almost taken out of the record altogether? Us our generation will remember him because we watched him live. So a lot of others legacy has to do with watching him live but after um, decades later when newer generations will come up they have not watched other lives they have heard of him as a fixer but then again over the past few years icc has named several others so this is getting slightly more attention i mean you know this right there was never any concrete evidence against us yeah unlike kron who confess so what i really would like for everyone to see is others even if one ignores the youtube videos <laughs> i mean he played 99 tests he scored a lot of runs but uh, there were patterns there were ordinary performances but there were hundreds in all countries he was a genius but he was an inconsistent cricketer and whatever happens they can't take away his runs and hundreds that is very true and you can read all about them in sachin as a at cape town thank you very much for coming on the podcast Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Red Crickets.